0: Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, we're going to go ahead and turn in our Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. You know, I was I was speaking to um, I was speaking to Matt this week about uh, a sermon that he's preparing for the future and he said you know i kind of been just talking thinking about suffering and, and, and going through suffering he said but you've you've been preaching on the power of proclamation and the victory that we have in Christ and and the power of the blood and he said so i don't know if i just want, if i want to go into that and then as he was speaking that this week the lord really began to deal with me specifically about suffering and I had a lot of conversations it seems like with people uh, that were just going through some, some very difficult times and, and honestly as a pastor it seems like every single day I'm having a conversation with somebody who's going through a difficult time and sometimes I carry that burden with me to bed at night and, and I try to, try to function through that and work through that and try to figure it out but here's the thing uh, you know, you never want to get to a place, especially in, in the in the body of Christ in the church, where where we get so focused on the victory of Christ that we don't understand how to go through suffering and process suffering in our world. You got to have both a theology of power and you have to have a theology of pain, and you have to hold those two things in tension. So I want to speak this morning uh, from Psalm 13, and the title of my message uh, you're going to be excited about it. Maybe how long, O oh Lord? Okay. Suffering and grieving toward hope. So let's read Psalm 13, verse 1 through 4. Here's what it says It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, and I need your help, God, because when we start to talk about so many of the things that we go through in this life that is broken and filled with sin and filled with pain, Lord God, we don't really have the wisdom or the, even the understanding uh, to address these things as we ought to address them. So I'm asking that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would help to enlighten us and give us an understanding because many times, God, the cry in our own heart, if we'll be honest with ourselves, is how long, oh Lord, how long are you going to, going to allow this to happen? But God, we, we suffer in this world and we grieve in this world, but I believe that we grieve toward the direction of hope because of what you have done for us, Jesus. So I pray that the truth of your word would come to life this morning and that we would find comfort in it and be transformed formed by it this morning in jesus name amen. amen so like i said we want to have both a theology of power and a theology of hope and you know so the, the past couple of weeks on wednesdays and on last sunday morning we talked about about power and and here's the thing folks, I I believe in miracles. Like, I'm probably one of the craziest guys in this room when it comes to that. Like, I I believe we ought to pray for healing. I believe that God is a God of miracles. If you read Scripture, you find that from the beginning to the end, God is a miracle working God. And we as the people of God ought to have a theology where we believe that we can pray and things can happen. Like, dramatic results can take place. God can reach into our world and break through and bring about dramatic change and, and bring resolution and bring peace and Bring healing and bring deliverance and freedom, and I've even been privileged enough to see God have dr- dramatic, miraculous results in people's lives. And we have to have a theology of power where we believe that God can can act on our world and do anything at any time to change situations and places and times. But here's one of the things: is that a lot of times we we also have to understand that we've got to have a theology of pain because here's the thing: when Jesus came, He brought the kingdom of God with Him, but He only brought it in part, and it is already, but it's not yet. We have not realized the fullness of God's deliverance and God's power at work in our world, and so we still live in a world filled with, if you're going to agree with me this morning, pain, suffering, sin, division, hatred, violence. All you got to do is look at the television and watch the news and see that, oh, okay, there's still some stuff that it doesn't tend to be working out. No matter how hard I pray, it doesn't seem like things are getting fixed in the world world and so it doesn't match our reality there's even churches in today's world that they go so far in the direction of believing for God's miracles that they have what is called a fully realized eschatology that basically right now God will raise the dead he'll do any and here's the thing I believe that he will I just don't believe that he always does amen I don't believe that we're there yet And some people will even teach that, hey, the kingdom is going to come fully on earth and then Jesus will come back. But guess what? That does not match our reality, does it? And so even though we pray and we believe and we have faith and we believe that God breaks through in our midst, a lot of times when we have that and we pray, it doesn't necessarily match our reality. Because while we do see healing, we do see deliverance and we do see freedom, right? We are still in a world of pain and suffering and sorrow and brokenness. And we don't have all the answers to that just yet. And so we wrestle with that. Do you? I mean, you, you wrestle with that. I pray for people and... Uh, and here's the thing, I believe that we should pursue God. I believe that as the church we should pray fast, seek God, and say, God, we want to see you move in people's lives. We want to see you bring healing and deliverance. That's, that's a part of who we are called to be as the church of Jesus Christ. But on that same token, we have to hold in tension the fact that sometimes we're going to pray and things aren't going to happen. Sometimes you're going to pray for sick people and they're still going to die. Sometimes you're going to pray for deliverance. I meet with people all the time. Listen, I meet with people sometimes, and I see God heal them dramatically from insane mental conditions. And then sometimes I meet with people, and nothing happens nothing and and I go home and I'm questioning like God what's going on here I've seen you do this before why are you not doing it now and I hold those things in tension and God helps me through it but here's the thing you have to learn that this is the state of the world that we are in and I have to hold those two things in tension and when things don't go the way that I want I need to learn to process it and grieve it and receive healing and comfort and direction for the Lord so that I don't give up hope on what I'm pursuing because what happens is sometimes people Will pray and believe God for a miracle, and then when it doesn't happen, they despair, and then they believe, well, you know what? Here's the thing God just doesn't do that stuff anymore, so they don't seek God to do anything altogether anymore at all. They live in brokenness, they live in pain, they live in rejection, and they just assume that God doesn't do that type of thing. And a lot of times, deep down, they're angry and they're bitter. And then on the other hand, some people, they have such a well-developed theology of pain, like they just don't believe God is going to do anything. They can comfort you in your loss, but they don't ever have the faith to pray and believe that God's going to do something in your life now. And so we have to hold those two things in tension. You know, I love, we talked about the... Uh, power of proclamation i love psalm 91 i I speak it over my life quite regularly who who dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty right and it says some crazy things in that verse it says that uh, a thousand shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand but it shall not come near you no evil shall befall you and neither shall any plague come near your dwelling place and i speak that all the time but you know what i got covid just last week Somebody amen me this morning. I believe Psalm 91. I believe in divine protection. But here's the thing. Even though I believe in Psalm 91, and I believe it's the promise of God, and I believe in divine protection, and I speak Psalm 91 over my family, and I trust in God's hand over my life, still yet, sometimes evil befalls me. Sometimes plagues come right into my dwelling place. (laughs) Amen. Amen. And so we're wondering, well, is this true? Is this not true? And what I want to say is that it is true, but the totality of Scripture shows us something far more broad and, and, and dare I say, something far more beautiful than just simply taking all the best parts of Scripture and believing it at face value. See, because on the face, it's, it looks like if I read Psalm 91 and my life is hidden in God and I proclaim that Scripture and I confess it in faith that there ain't going to be no bad stuff happen to me in this life. But have me, It even says that he, he'll give his angels charge over you. They'll, they'll bear you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against the stone. It's like, man, if I live for God, I'm not even going to stub my toe. Anybody? But here's the thing. I've stubbed some toes. I get up in the morning, turn the air down, crack, son. I like, Lord, what about the angels, dude? I thought I should have been lifted up at this point. I've been believing your word. What's going on here? Have y'all, ever not, have y'all ever felt this tension or I'm the first person that's ever actually voiced it in front of you? Because we think to be a good Christian, you don't ever wrestle with these things. You just blindly believe and blindly go through life and say positive things every time. And I know I just got done preaching about saying positive things and I believe in it. But I think sometimes one of Satan's greatest tricks is to get us to believe shallow promises of God so firmly that when they do not happen... We enter into anger, doubt, and denial. Sometimes Satan's greatest trick is to get us to believe God's promises so firmly that we reject certain other promises of God. We reject the promises of God that in this life you will have tribulation. In this life you will go through suffering. In this life you will experience loss. It is appointed unto man once to die. Amen. That's a promise as well. And holding those promises in tension is difficult for the Christian believer, especially in the American church who has been taught that we can just believe and speak positively and do all the things that we're supposed to do and hopefully we won't stub our toes. So we live in the already... The not yet, when all of the promises of God are not yet fully realized and they're not happening completely in the sense that we hope for them to happen all of the time. Most of the people, I'll be honest with you, want and hope that God is a way for them to get through life without having any pain or sorrow and that is the farthest thing from the truth. God is not a way for you to get through this life without struggle. God is not a way for you to get through this life without pain and suffering. He is not any of those things. And I think sometimes many people get upset. And many people even now veer toward atheism because they do not know how to process their anger and their pain and go to God for healing when they suffer in this life. And they assume if God was good and if God was really in control, why would these things... He can't be. I'm not dealing with this. So I would rather move into a place of anger and rejection Rather than learn how to process my pain and understand what God has actually said in Scripture, and I think sometimes we can wait on God to do something that honestly God may not do. Amen. At least not yet, anyway. At least not yet anyway. Often when bad things happen, this this morning I'm gonna I'm gonna hit a couple of things. I want you to hear me out because I'll hit some things that many of you would be like, I don't know about you better be careful, Clay. But oftentimes when bad things happen, we say, and I hear people say, and we make quotes, and we say, God is in control. God is in control. Have you all heard that statement? Maybe you've said that statement. A lot of times people say, I have said that statement. I believe that statement. But but here's the thing, I also personally wrestle with that statement, because here's one of the things that I've seen even as a pastor. I have seen people go through very, very difficult times, and they have said to me during their difficult time, God is in control. And they found great comfort from that, knowing that, that okay, that in some sense, God, God is handling this. I know that he's over this. I know, I know that he's taking care of this. And they find great comfort in that. Then I've seen people go through very difficult times and someone say to them, God is in control. And it provoked them to great anger and great confusion and say, well, if God is in control, why would he cause such a thing like this to happen? And so you have to be very careful with these cliche statements that we just throw out because while we believe them, sometimes I think that we mean different things than we're actually saying because we've not really, in, in, a, in a good, good way, well-developed our, our way of thinking about this because a better phrase that I believe personally is that God is sovereign. I believe he's sovereign. I believe that God is sovereign. Of course, what, it, what we mean by sovereign, I think, to me personally, is different than control. When you think about control... You're you're, you're talking about to act in such a way that it would actually make the other thing not what it is on its own. Because if I control you, you are doing what I will and not what you will. If I control you, you're not doing what you will, you're doing what I will. Amen. To control something in the sense of the term, if I've got a controller, and on the other end of my controller is a man named Mario... And he's a digital person on the other side of that screen. Mario does not jump unless I push the A button. Amen. He does not move right unless I put the directional pad right. I am in control of every single one of Mario's actions. And in that sense, I want to argue that God is not in control. Part of the reason my life is weak and and struggles in so many different ways is because God is not in control of it. I know y'all are like, oh gosh, Clay has messed up. <laughs> if God was fully in control of all of my actions, I would be a lot more loving person. I would respond to my wife a lot more differently than I do in difficult situations. I would be a far better pastor if God was in control of my life. I learn, I learn by the Spirit to learn how to yield to this God who is sovereign over all things but he's not in some control center pulling the buttons, pushing the buttons, making me do every single thing that I do because God is in a sovereign relationship with me and that's different than control. That's different than control over his world. He has a sovereign relationship with his world, but it's different than control because God is sovereignly creative, which means that he creates my freedom and weaves his sovereignty into it. And I know that causes your brain to explode this morning, but that's the way that God is. He's far more mysterious than you can grasp. His sovereignty is not something that we can just talk about and say, hmm, I understand that. You won't understand it. You don't understand it. But what I'm telling you is that there are things that are going on in this world that means that God's creativity and wisdom and sovereignty is at work in and through every single thing that takes place, yet it does not impede on your freedom at all, and yet God remains God overall. How does that work, Clay? I have no idea. He's God and we're not. And I know that he's in a relationship with me where His crea- when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking far more about God's creativity and his wisdom than we are his control. Yeah. I understand that. I know that's difficult. Not everybody will receive that necessarily. But God's relationship to me is creative and it's sovereign. It's not controlling, nor is it not not controlling. It's something unlike control completely. It's a kind of relationship that only God can have with us. There's nothing that takes place outside of God. In, in him all things consist. But to say that he is controlling every move that takes place in the world would say that he is directly responsible for the evil that happens in this world. And that's a struggle that I wrestle with. Right? So for example, I, I, looked at, I was looking at some photos. We, you know, we, we sponsored a guy, James LaPoto, who is in South Sudan. And South Sudan is a terrible place to be in right now and Sudan is a terrible place I want you to put that photo up there if you would this is a photo taken it's a blurry image but this was taken in Sudan uh, several years back and uh, it was taken by a guy named Kevin Carter and this is a little boy who is emaciated because he's starving to death there was a great famine in Sudan during that time and Kevin Carter went in to see it and he, and he took this picture and he actually got a Pulitzer Prize for this picture that he took and the dozens and thousands and maybe perhaps even millions of people were literally dying and have been dying even since that time uh, 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 of starvation and war and disease and all kinds of things. And what you see is this baby starving and this, this vulture in the background waiting on that child to die so that it can eat it. And he takes this picture. And if you read about, if you read about what took place here... Uh, they actually say that this, this child was trying to get to one of the United Nations camps so that it could get food and nourishment, et cetera. And it ended up, this child ended up making it. The guy that took the picture uh, shooed the buzzard away, or whatever it is, and the vulture, and, and, and the child ended up making it to, to the camp, but the child did die a few years later of, of disease, of, of, of a fever. Now, this guy won the Pulitzer Prize for... Uh, for this photo, and then several weeks after he won the Pulitzer Prize, he took his own life. He didn't know how to deal with these things in the world. I think sometimes we deal with loss, we deal with pain, but if you see, if you were to pull back and see the broad picture of all the evil that's taking place in the world right now, it would be so overwhelming to you that you could not contain it. I'll just go ahead and tell you. You think about sex trafficking, you think about children being abducted, being raped, being abused, being murdered. You think about all of the evil that's going on in our world that today, uh, I think I, I read a statistic that over 70,000 men have been killed in Ukraine just since they started the war in Russia. And you talk about all the wars throughout history of husbands and, and fathers and brothers being killed uh, in, in, in war and in combat and the violence and the hatred and the, and the greed that it takes to enter into that kind of evil with other people. And you start to wrestle with things like that, it's more and more difficult to just say out of your mouth, God is in control. How difficult would it be to stand over that situation? Look at that child, that vulture about to eat this child, and perhaps it's even taken place before in that vicinity. And how difficult would it be to stand over that and say, God's in control? Just a little cliche hashtag, you know what I'm saying? Like something that we say regularly, it becomes increasingly difficult. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to say that. I'm just saying that we have to wrestle with it a little bit more deeply than we often do wrestle with it. Because I think whether we realize it or not, deeply seated in us is the sense in which God is an agent in the world where he could control what happens, but for some reason or another, he just isn't at this moment. That's what we really think, right? Like, God, you could fix that. You could keep this child from getting eaten by a buzzard, but for some reason or another, we don't know why, but you're not. And we end up coming to this conclusion that either God is able, but he just chooses to not do anything about it, or God's not able. Amen. That's, that's, that is the argument of, of 99% of most, most atheists, is that either God is all-powerful and just chooses not to do anything about it, or he's not able at all. And he doesn't do anything about it. But I want to argue that both of those ways are unfaithful ways of talking. Both of those ways are the wrong way of looking at God altogether. And the world that we live in and the way that he's created it and how he's given human beings dominion in this earth and responsibility in this earth. And how we see the end of the book and how we see what God's plan is and what he's moving toward. Those are unfaithful ways of talking about what God is doing. Now, I heard a sermon one time. It was probably in the top ten of one of the worst sermons I've ever heard. And I know y'all are thinking, well, Clay, you've preached some of my top five. (laughs) And I'm thinking maybe this is right there in it. So I, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. So, but this guy said, you can tr-, the main point of his sermon was, you can trust God because God is in control. And then he gave this, he gave this elaborate sort of a, a, a point behind it. And he said, you know, it's like Disney World. When you go to Disney World, you got your cotton candy and your kids are going to certain rides. And he said, and you're in the line. But somewhere behind the scenes, underground of Disney World, is a few people in a control center making sure everything's taking place and they know where the money's going and they know how long the lines are so that they're making sure everything ends up working out properly so that you can have a good time at Disney World. But can I tell you that, and he said, see, that's just like God. That's what he said. And you know what my response was? No, bro, that ain't just like God God is not somewhere in a control center pushing buttons making things like this happen when you see starving babies and children dying and violent wars these are things that are actually anti Christ these things are anti God these things are anti kingdom of God these things are not buttons that God pushes in a control center amen you say but, but Clay but these things are happening and God remains God I say yes God is sovereign I don't understand why all these things happen, but I know that if I read according to Scripture, none of these things are according to God's nature and character. And though while they are happening in God and through God and with us in the world, and we don't understand it, God is not pushing the buttons behind the evil of the world. Amen. Amen. So we still wrestle with it. And I know some people are saying, gosh, Clay, I don't even know how you're going to tie this one up and make it make sense. We don't want to say about the horrors and tragedies. I hear stories all the time. I heard a story I heard a story uh, recently about a, a woman who left her child in the vehicle and the, got so hot in the vehicle that, that the child died. And then it reminded me of a time when I lived down in Tennessee where there was a grandmother, sweet lady. People knew her, and she left her grandbaby in the vehicle, and it was cold outside, so she turned the heat on. And when she came back, The baby died of a heat stroke in the car. And I wrestle with that stuff, and I think to myself, my God, the last thing I'm thinking at that moment is that God is in control. I'm thinking it's out of control. What in the world is happening here? What what is going on? That these are the things that we have to deal with and we have to face in our world and just try to find a way through it. When we say God is in control, I know what we're saying because deep down what we feel is that at the end of this, it's not over yet. That's what we really mean, right? What we really mean when we say God is in control is that God is not done being God just yet. That's what we really mean. So that's why I say it. I say God is in control because he's sovereign over all and he sees what's happening and he sees what we're going through. And even though he's not the one pushing the buttons behind the evil in the world, God is not yet done being God in our world and in our lives. He's not finished yet. He's not through. And we mean that God acts in this time, but until the end of everything, God never does everything that God can do. God God never does everything that God can do until the end. This is why in 1 Corinthians 13, it says something that like even now we only see through a glass dimly. We're not seeing the full picture yet. God has not yet fully unveiled everything that he is and everything that he is going to do. He has acted and he is acting, but there is still more for God to do that has not been done yet. And that's what we believe and that's what we profess when we say God is in control. See, God has not been fully God yet, except in Jesus Christ. That's why we call ourselves Christians. Because we say, when God does everything that God can do, it looks like Jesus Christ. And when God shows up and does everything that He can do, He comes of a miraculous birth, and He shows up on the scene and He loves people unconditionally. He reaches out to the broken. When a child dies, He raises the child from the dead. When there's somebody sick and afflicted, He heals them all, delivers them completely, speaks a word of love and truth. When there's a woman caught in adultery, He raises her up and shakes condemnation off of her. And when people are demonized and in demonic possession and bondage and have mental disorders, He heals them and sets them free. When God does all that God can do, he looks like Je- it looks like Jesus. That's why we're Christians. Because we say when when we when we believe God does all that God can do, it looks just like Jesus. But see, here's the issue: God has done all that he can do for Jesus, but he's not yet done everything that he can do for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, it says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, interestingly enough, the ESV is the only translation that translates it control because it is a questionable translation, but I wanted to use it because it says that. He has left nothing outside of his control. Then it says this, though, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying he's left everything under his control, but at present we do not yet see everything under the full exercise of his control. There is nothing that is outside of his control, but we do not yet see the full exercise of his control. Not everything has yet been subjected to him fully because he has handed that measure of authority over to his church to be his body in the earth for a season until the end of all things has come. And we're in the already, but the not yet. This means that the church has a measure of responsibility in what is taking place in the world. And see, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, and he's left nothing outside of his control. We do not yet see his control fully exercised, and it's telling us that God has done everything he can do for Jesus, but God has not yet done everything that he can do for me and for you. That means, guess what? I live by faith and not by sight. I live by faith and not by sight. I don't see everything happening the way that I believe it to happen. I don't see everything happening based upon every scripture that I proclaim. I proclaim scripture over situations, and it seems sometimes that the exact opposite happens. Amen. I don't yet see everything, but I live by faith... And not by sight, because you're going to go through this life, and let me tell you something, even with God and your prayer life being amazing and everything working out the way that it's supposed to work out, you're still going to experience unfortunate things. And sometimes, let me tell you this, you are going to experience evil things. You're going to experience wicked things. And you're going to question how in the world did a sovereign God bring this to pass in my life and why in the world would I be going through such a thing and what I want to say is is that it's not that God is doing that it's not that God is allowing that it's not that God is acting on that that's not the way that we think about these things because that's not what scripture teaches us what it literally means to have faith is that you trust when God is, is is through being God to you that evil will be made right When I have faith, I trust that when God is ultimately through with everything that I'm going through, and God is done being God in my life, all evil in my life will be made right. It won't be overlooked, it won't be swept under the rug, but every single evil, one day, when God is through being God in my life, it will be made right, and that which I saw through a glass dimly, I will see in fullness in the end, and it will have made sense because of what God does in my life. But he's not yet done it all. Amen. And that's a difficult tension for us to hold because we're crying out. You know that the characteristic prayer of the Old Testament. I know I remember when I first went to seminary, the first day that I was in a class in Old Testament was my first class. And when I took it, the dude showed me a video, and the whole premise of it was how long, O oh Lord. And, and, he, and he said, this is the characteristic prayer of the Old Testament. I was like, bro, are you, sure that's the char- like is, are you sure that's the characteristic prayer of the Old Testament? And the point was is that, yes, all of the prophets, all of the people in the Old Testament, they're crying out, how long, O Lord, because they are waiting for the day, the end of all things. They're waiting for what they call the day of God when God finally showed up and set all things right. They looked at the world and they said, man, this thing is broken, it's messed up, we're facing our enemies, people are dying, there's wars, there's violence, there's disease. How long, O oh Lord? And they started to cry this out from deep within because they were waiting for the day of the Lord. They didn't see the world around them as a God, as a world in which God was in control. They saw the world around them that seemed to be out of control and they were waiting for God to exercise his control on it. Amen. This is why when Jesus showed up, they started to see God's control breaking in. They started to see it breaking through, and it gave them a glimpse and an image of the kingdom to come when God reconciles and heals all things. Understand what I'm pointing at here. And I'm not saying that even in the evil, God is not at work. He's sovereign over it, my friends. I'm just telling you, I don't know how to explain that in a way that'll give you peace except for the fact that God is working this towards something greater than we understand. He's working it far beyond. And when you go through these things, there's something God is moving you toward. Because even the last prayer of the New Testament is just like the characteristic prayer of the old. You know what it is. Many of you read the book of Revelation, you know what is it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why would you cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus, if God is doing, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why come quickly? We got it made down here. We've got it made. No, we do not. They cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because they say, Jesus, we have seen you begin to work. We know you're not done yet, but we want to see you finish the work that you've begun. Right. We want to see you complete the work that you've begun when righteousness is established in the earth. All wounds are healed and every tear is wiped from every eye. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, is what we cry out. Amen. What I'm experiencing now is not the truth about me or the truth about my life. What you've lost in the here and now is not the truth about you or the truth about your life. You will not know the truth about you completely until you see Jesus in the end. Then you will know the truth. Then you will see your loved ones. Then you will see the lost children that you may have lost. Then you will see all of these things and it will come to fruition and you will know the truth about yourself even as you know the full truth about God. And you'll be wrapped up in His love for eternity. And all of these things will pass away. See, we say God is good all the time, and I think sometimes when I say God is good all the time, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like almost like after a lottery type, moment, like something good really happens. Hey, God is good all the time, brother. <laughs> Nobody usually says that after something terrible happens. Nobody usually says that while they're standing over a Sudanese girl who's starving to death, right? We we say it to say, my life's going pretty well right now. Terrible things aren't happening. But I want to say this, that as Christians, when we say God is good, it's actually a defiant act of faith. When we say God is good to somebody who's going through suffering and doesn't believe in God because of the pain of their life, we're saying God is good as a defined act of faith. And what we're trying out is how long, O oh Lord, before you show up and you bring the past in reality so that people see with their eyes what we now believe in our hearts by faith. Because we know that you are good even when this world doesn't always reflect it. We know God's good even when the world doesn't always reflect it. And one day he will come and bring a full demonstration of that good and set all things right. And what we know by faith, then everybody else will know by sight. And so we cry out God is good because we believe in something greater to come. That's why we cry out God is good. Not because we always sense it and experience it in this life. Sometimes we experience brokenness and we experience pain. But see, even when we are going through suffering, here's what the scripture says so beautifully. And these are the promises that we hold in tension with the power of God. Romans 5 verse 3 through 5, it says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't it interesting how often the apostles talk about suffering and boasting in suffering? I mean, it's just like, boys, why are you talking about this so much? Can we not move into some Americanized gospel where everything is good and positive and God's going to give you the breakthrough, honey? You know what I'm saying? Like, why, why can't we preach that way, apostles? How come that isn't in Scripture more? They talk about it so much. Matter of fact, Paul says to the Philippians, you have been graced to suffer. And I'm thinking, everything I've heard about grace is something that's supposed to help me not suffer. Anybody amen me this morning? That's, what the, that's the sermons that I've heard. I've been told I'm not supposed to suffer if I have enough grace, if I have enough faith. All these claims throughout the New Testament that God can do absolutely anything. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He sets people free. And yet suffering is at the heart of our life. Paul will actually say that this life, if he sums it up, is present suffering. And I want to say that God will not save you from that suffering. He will save you in that suffering. God will not take you from the responsibility that you have in this world to suffer. He won't take you from it. Hey, Clay, this is encouraging this morning. Thank you. <laughs> it says reason because suffering produces endurance. And any form of Christianity that does not train us in patience isn't true. Listen to me, saints. And this is a hard one, especially for us young people. Because anytime we have a difficulty, anytime we have a struggle, we say there's an there's a answer for that, there's a medication for that, there's a prayer for that. We can get this thing fixed right away because we don't want to suffer or feel any discomfort in this life. And I'm telling you, you have been ordained by a sovereign God to suffer. And that suffering produces endurance. And if you don't go through that suffering and feel it to its depths, you will never learn endurance and patience. And without endurance and patience, you cannot make it. He says, those who endure to the end shall be saved. We have to learn endurance. Suffering produces endurance. We can't get out of every struggle and every problem that we go through. I can't avoid every hard and difficult conversation that I have to have with people and just pray and hope that God fixes it miraculously behind the scenes. I have to confront the suffering and the hardship head on. And this is good preaching this morning. The only way that Christ's character is going to be formed in me is when God lets me live in the midst of suffering and endurance. See, a lot of things can happen. You know, here's the thing. You you, you drift toward a certain denominational camp, son. We believe, I believe in altar calls. I believe that people can be prayed for and miraculous things can happen. I've been to altar calls where miraculous things can happen in my life. But can I tell you something? Character doesn't come through an altar call. It does not. You're not going to love your enemies because I lay my hands on you after, after church this morning. The only way that you can learn to love your enemies is if your enemies do evil to you and you're put in a position where you have to respond with love on a regular basis. And unless you go through that suffering, you cannot learn that kind of love. Isn't that amazing? There's so many things that God wants to produce and work in you, and this is where I say that God is sovereign, because while He's not pushing buttons or pushing control, He wants to teach you love. He wants to teach you a kind of love that sees that Sudanese girl out in the desert and says, I've got to go help that person. That sees that suffering and is moved from within and says, I've got to move toward that direction in love that can't sit back idly and look at it and just let the bird do what the bird wants to do and not shoo it away and say, well, God's in control. He's allowing this to happen for a reason. That's not what God's trying to do in our world. He's trying to help you come into a position where you take the burdens on yourself that Christ himself took when he went to the cross. That Christ himself took when he went to the cross because at some point, you're going to go through suffering and that suffering is going to produce endurance. And that, that endurance is going to produce character. And that character is going to pour hope out in you. And that love of Christ is going to begin to be formed in you. But it is the suffering that begins to ignite true love in your life. Because I want you to understand this. At some point, and this is what I'm beginning to understand as a pastor. Because I've got to be honest with you. Can I confess something to you this morning? Sometimes when I hear from this person and then this person on Tuesday and this person on Tuesday night and then this person on Wednesday morning and I hear the suffering that they're going through, in the battles that they face sometimes very large sometimes more seemingly small regardless all suffering all pain all struggle whether it's even just perceived or it's actually real after a while I want to escape from it I don't want to hear about the problems I don't want to see that picture I don't want to think about starving kids. I don't want to think about diseased kids. I don't want to think about people with cancer. I, I, I just am so burdened with it. And I was laying in bed this, this week dealing with, with thinking about people's problems. And I didn't sleep one night, one entire night. And I'm laying there and the Lord says, but Clay, don't you understand that it goes to a place where now it moves beyond your own personal suffering and there comes a point where now you start to take on the sufferings of others and that's how you become like me. It's the only way you're going to become like Christ and it hit me like a ton of bricks and it says okay i say okay this is this is what i'm called to actually in the world i'm called to not just try to figure out how to get through my own suffering i'm called to move past it to a place where now i'm taking on the burdens and the sufferings of others because that's what it means to be Christ that's what it means to be Christ in the world you begin to take on the burdens of other people's sufferings and you recognize that's why you are in the world because God's way of getting through to these people can I tell you this God does not represent his sovereignty and his power and his control through the fact that a young girl is dying and a vulture is coming to eat her no God reveals himself when a person shows up and shooes away the vulture and picks up the girl and smiles at her and begins to feed her and begins to take her back to a place where she can be nourished God has chosen sovereignly to work through you in a broken world until he comes back and heals all things so he's waiting on us to take responsibility and not just look back and fold our arms and say well God's in control if that's what happened then God must have wanted it to happen no he wants us to move in it I don't know why all things happen I'm not trying to even answer these questions I'm I'm, I'm a moron when it comes to these things I don't expect to have the wisdom of God I prayed through this and said Lord if you don't show up and speak through me somehow this won't even make sense this morning because we're dealing with topics that are beyond us And we move into a place of faith to try to work through them. But the more like Christ you become, the more burdens you take on and the more responsibility you begin to carry. And I want to say this. You know, when you first read Psalm 13 at face value, if you're like one of those really holy Christians, you read it and you're like, what is the psalmist complaining about? We're blessed. We don't need to be complaining like that. And the Lord flipped that scripture on its head and he said, no, 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 Clay, do you understand that when you've got a cry in your heart that says, how long, O oh Lord, you're actually coming into alignment with Christ. Because what you're doing is you're seeing the brokenness of the world and you're desiring it to be made whole and that is God's deepest desire. You say, well, why hasn't he done it yet? I don't know, he's sovereign, but he ain't done yet. And when he does fix all things, no matter how long or how bad or whatever we think that it, that it was, and why didn't God fix it then, we will be able to say, that makes sense. Yeah. Now I understand. I see God in a greater light and in a bigger way. See, this is why in Romans 8, 18 and 19 it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can't even compare. You will put all of your worst sufferings, and even that Sudanese girl getting ready to be eaten by a vulture, and you'll put it up against the glory of God. In the end, he said it doesn't compare. It 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 pales. And you'll see that girl once again restored and whole, and eating whatever's at that heavenly banquet. You understand what I'm saying? God's doing something and he says it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God and here's what I want to say to us is that we are waiting on God but this scripture says that everything else is waiting on us do you hear that we're waiting on God to do something and this scripture says that the entire creation is waiting on us God, why aren't you moving in that situation? And the creation is saying, why aren't you? The creation is waiting on the sons of God to to, to understand that I have been called for such a time as this to be Christ in a broken world, to carry the burdens of the world, to intercede for the brokenness of the world. And in some measure, whatever measure I can, step into that place, bear that burden, and point them toward the place of hope in Christ. That's my job. I cannot sit back idly and say, Well, God's in control. He'll take care of this. John says, The love of God is not in your heart if that's your stance on life. Amen. Paul then goes on to say, Who can separate us from the love of God? Can famine separate us from the love of God, or disease, or persecution throughout the world, or even the sword? Can that separate this from, from the love of God? Because those are all things that you're going to experience in this life. You'll experience famine and persecution and nakedness and peril and sword and hatred and division and all of these things. And he says, but none of those things can separate us from the love of God. Matter of fact, in Romans eight thirty seven, he says, no, no, no. They won't separate you from the love of God. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him, who loved us. It. it didn't say through all these things. It didn't say you'd get through it. It didn't say above all these things, over all these things. Once these things are done, no, it said in all of these things you are more than conquerors. And here's what's so interesting about that is he doesn't say that you are a conqueror. He says you are more than a conqueror. Well, what sense does that make, Clay? Because I want to tell you, when Jesus Christ was taking on the full burdens of the world, he's on the cross, bearing the full weight of that burden, the hatred of the world, and and being murdered and being beaten and crucified on the cross, a conqueror, what a conqueror would do, would take the nails out of his hands and kill them. That's what a conqueror would do. If he was the conquered, he would simply die on a cross with hatred and bitterness in his heart, wailing and gnashing, Because of the anger that he had at those that were murdering him if he was the conquered. But no, no, no. On the cross, in those things, he was more than a conqueror, which is why he could cry out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror means that you can go through suffering, you can go through pain, you can suffer disease and death and loss, and in all of those things, you can still say, I'm not bitter. I trust in a God who's not done yet, and therefore, no matter how bad you hate me, if you crucify me, I'm still going to love you. If you betray me, I will still intercede for you. If you hate me, I will still find a way to bless you because I'm more than a conqueror in all of these things that are going on in our world. Crazy mind-blowing this is what God is calling us to a conqueror would never say that from the cross someone being conquered would never say that from the cross but here's the thing that's what God's calling us to but but I want to finish with this because right now many of you are, you, you if you're listening and maybe here maybe maybe you're like you know what Clay my, my life is perfect and and I'm not going through that much praise God you will And so what do we do with our pain that leads us away from God and into confusion and into anger and into bitterness and looking for some kind of option other than God? 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. He comforts you in all of your troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And here's what I want to say to people. Some people that go through so many difficult things, I'll be honest with you, I try to answer things because I'm that kind of a person. Anybody that kind of a person in the room. I want to make sense of the world and I want to be able to answer things and sometimes I just don't have good answers. And I've come to recognize that when people are going through pain and suffering, you know what they really don't want? is my answers. There's a guy who wrote a song, uh, John Mark McMillan, The Road, the Rocks, and the Weeds, and he he said, I don't have an answer for heartaches or cancers, but a Savior who suffers them with me. And that's the thing, we don't have necessarily all the answers to what we're going through in this life, but what we do have is a God that is revealed in Christ that he has chosen to suffer our sufferings with us. On the cross, he entered into your pain. On the cross, he entered into your suffering. And it says he's the father of all compassion. The Latin word uh, compassion is two words that means literally to suffer with God is not away from your suffering. He's not causing your suffering. He doesn't, he's not careless about your suffering. Matter of fact, He has entered into your suffering with you on the cross. And in that, He chooses to give you comfort So that he does get you through it. But in these things he makes you more than a conqueror. So that you become like Christ. And character is formed. But he gives us a key on this side of eternity. In order to get through. And this is an important key. And I want to try to get through it quickly as I can. But we must grieve the painful losses of the past seasons. Of our life. Before we can effectively embrace the present and the future. See so many people... They don't learn how to grieve appropriately and they don't know how to cry out how long, oh Lord. They don't know how to pour out their soul before the Lord. And so what they end up doing is they get locked into their past and they're not able to embrace the future because they do not know how to process suffering and they build up walls against God and so many people are in that condition. They've not received what God offers them. See, he offers them this ability to grieve or to mourn. And that word simply means to express sorrow. And in the simplest sense, what I say is that it means to bring what is on the inside out to the surface. And see, what Jesus said is that if you learn how to do this in Matthew 5, 4, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and what he's saying is blessed are those who actually get what's on the inside of them out to the surface and they learn how to cry out how long O lord i'm going through this are you not going to answer me are you not and when they open that up and all the compartments of their soul to god all of a sudden he meets them there with comfort he meets them there with healing. He meets them there with perspective. And oftentimes it takes time to work through this in order to experience God's true comfort. And there's so many things that we suppress. You know, I don't know how many of you all, I know people even in my life, it's like, they're, they're, here's the thing even about being a pastor. It's like if somebody goes through a difficult time, they will call the pastor immediately because they know the pastor can fix this. Anybody amen me, right? I, I, well, Clayton, fix it. Because we, we tend to be fixers, right? If my wife's going through something, I want, I, okay, hold on, I got 15 minutes. I think we can get this fixed. Do you know that oftentimes you ain't getting nothing fixed? And what they don't need is somebody to fix it because you can't fix it. But what you can do is listen and you can help them to get what is on the inside out. And when you can start to get what is on the inside out of a person and bring it before God in prayer, all of a sudden you open yourself up to the healing power and comfort of God. So let me give you four quick things and then I will be done. But this is important if you're going to get through this life. And number one, what brings about the need for grief? Loss in general. And it's not just death because loss is happening to us every day. There's a, a, a great book written by Henry Nouwen and here's what he says. I want you to read this with me. He, it's, he says, if there's any word that summarizes well our pain, it is the word loss. We have lost so much. Sometimes it seems as if life is just one long series of losses. When we were born, we lost the safety of the womb. When we went to school, we lost the security of our family life. When we got our first job, we lost the freedom of our youth. When we got married or ordained, we lost the joy of many options. Imagine you, some of you spouses, you know what I'm saying? You get married, you got you to gotta mourn the, joy, the, the loss of many options. <laughs> Amen. You do. And when we grow old, we lost our good looks, our old friends, or our fame. When we became weak or ill, we lost our physical independence. And when we die, we lose it all. And these losses are part of the ordinary life. But whose life is ordinary? The losses that settle themselves deeply in our hearts and minds are the loss of intimacy through separations, the loss of safety through violence, the loss of innocence through abuse. So many people have lost so much because they have been abused by a parent, been abused by a family member. They have lost so much innocence through these types of things. The loss of friends through betrayal. The loss of love through abandonment, the loss of home through war, the loss of well-being through hunger, heat, and cold, the loss of children through illness or accidents, the loss of country through political upheaval, and the loss of life through earthquakes, floods, plane crashes, bombings, and diseases. Perhaps many of these dark losses are far away from us. Maybe they belong to the world of newspapers and television screens, but nobody can escape the agonizing losses that are part of our everyday existence, the loss of our dreams. Bottom line, every single one of us are going to go through loss, period, and and there's going to be several things that we're going to do, but if we do not learn how to grieve and to mourn the losses that we experience in this life, we get locked into our past and we cannot embrace the future because we've hardened ourselves against who God wants to be in our now. So why is grieving necessary? What happens if you don't grieve? We deaden our hearts and we compartmentalize our life. Sometimes whenever we we experience disappointment, what I notice so many people do when they experience disappointment, this doesn't work out, this relationship doesn't work out. We deaden our hearts to it because we don't grieve our disappointments and we say, you know what, forget it. I'm not hoping for anything anymore. I'm just not going to believe God for anything in that area. I've done, I've been through that. I've experienced loss in that. And you let go of your dreams. You let go of any future because you've not grieved well your losses. And what I'm saying is God still has more for us. He's a God of hope. He's a God that wants to bring us into a place of hope. He takes us through these things. And in these things, we are more than conquerors. That means that we can experience pain and loss and destruction, be healed from it and move forward to a greater measure of joy and hope than ever before. Because we know that God is still at work and he's not done being God in our lives yet. And my question is, are we grieving our disappointments? Or are we compartmentalizing our lives and just shoving that over there in a corner and say, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to bring that before God. Another guy goes on and says it like this. He said, instead of dealing with our arrows, the lies that attach themselves to our loss and disappointments, we silence the longing. That seems to be our only hope. And so we lose heart, how many losses can a heart take? So we just give up on everything altogether. I can't take no more. But see, if we embrace biblical grieving as a spiritual discipline, not as just a one-time event, but something that we're constantly moving into to allow God to heal us, we can move forward. But he says this, if we deny the wounds or try to minimize them, we deny a part of our heart and end up living with a shallow optimism. That frequently becomes a demand that the world be better than it is. So he says, you're either going to let your wounds swallow you up so you have no hope, or you're just going to pass over and say, ah, that wasn't that big of a deal. I'm fine. God's good. Praise the Lord. And you just sort of compartmentalize your life and try to move on. But in either way, you're responding inappropriately to what's going on. So why do we avoid the grieving process? Y'all know why you avoid the grieving process, because you don't like pain. You don't want to relive it you don't want to feel it, you don't want to go through it again. And here's, here's, here's my argument to you. Here's what I know about human beings and what little wisdom that I've got over my 36 years is that until people open up about the pain of their past, they will not be able to be healed. A wound that is concealed is a wound that is never healed. And we have to open up. And here's the thing, when we deaden our hearts and we compartmentalize our lives, when we shut off, okay, I'm not grieving and I'm not mourning in that direction, and you pull that back here, you pull the continuum of joy back on this side. The deeper you can grieve on this side and mourn your loss on this side is the deeper you can move into the joy of the Lord on the other side of it. When we compartmentalize ourselves and harden ourselves and deaden our hearts, we don't grieve or mourn, but we don't enter into true joy either. And we just stay dead, we stay numb, we feel nothing. What I'm saying is that we've got to grieve and we've got to mourn to go into the joy of the Lord. And here's my last point, number four. With what options then does our past pain leave us personally? And here's five quick things that it leaves us. We can go into hiding or denial, and we can just say, you know what? Other people struggle with other things, and that's where we rationalize it. We just hide it, we deny it, and then we rationalize it. Man, there's way people going through way worse stuff than I'm going through. I mean, look at what's going on in Sudan. But guess what? Just because other people's stuff is worse than yours does not mean that that thing still isn't lodged in your heart causing a problem. No matter how little you may think it is, it's still lodged in your heart causing bitterness and pain and rejection and all of those things, what your parents did to you in the past. There's a reason that Jesus said, you know what? It's better for a man to have a millstone tied around his neck and be cast into the sea than to offend one of these little children. You know why? Because pain is exaggerated in a child. And when you experience something as a child... You numb yourself to it. You compartmentalize it and push it away. But by the time you're 30 or 40, this thing has veered you off course. And you don't even realize it because you shoved it somewhere in a deep corner. And God's saying you've got to learn how to mourn that. Quit rationalizing it away because what might happen to some people is they'll move into anger or bitterness. And so many people are angry at a God who is not done being God to them yet. And they can't move into anger and bitterness. They've got to move into a place where they allow God to face that anger. And Because here's the thing, if you're like me, I remember moving into anger and bitterness and just numbing myself. And you know what I did to help numb it? I moved into addictions. And you can get addicted to alcohol. You can get addicted to drugs. You can get addicted to ministry. And you can just get addicted to your job or just staying busy and doing as much as you can possibly do other than face the music. Other than actually mourn. The loss is in the pain that is in your heart, and that leaves you with the last and only viable option, biblical grief and mourning. And I'm going to close with this, this quote. Yes, we must mourn our losses. We cannot talk or act them away, but we can shed tears over them, and we can allow ourselves to grieve deeply. To grieve is to allow our losses to tear apart our feelings of security and safety and lead us to the painful truth of our brokenness. So in the midst of all this pain, there's a strange and very surprising voice of the one who says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. That's the unexpected news. There's a blessing hidden in our grief. Not those who comfort are blessed, but those who mourn. Somehow in the midst of our tears, a gift is given. Somehow in the midst of our mourning, the first steps of the dance take place. Somehow the cries that well up from our losses belong to our songs of gratitude. Amen. So here's what I want to say in closing. Is that you've got to remember this, that God is not yet through being God. And he's moving us toward something sovereignly. In which all of the sufferings in your world will make sense one day. And he's seeking to produce something in you that you do not yet understand. But it's not just him trying to get you through your suffering. He's trying to make you something in those sufferings. But he's getting you to a place where now all of a sudden the sufferings of others become your burdens as well. And when you take on those burdens, you take on the burden of Christ and he makes you into his own image. This is what he's calling us all to. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. On some level, I've got to believe that this message spoke to you. Whether you are currently dealing with something that you don't understand or a wound that you've not allowed to be healed or whatever it may be. There may be a cry in your heart that just like the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow this to take place and this to happen? And that's a good place to be. But right now, I'm just going to ask you, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do anything other than ask you to respond to the Lord however you see fit. If it's to say, God, let me take on the burdens that you take on. Let me grieve with somebody else. Let me mourn with somebody who mourns right now. And Lord, let me be somebody who can bring healing and love and your compassion and listen to the hurts that somebody else is going through. Or Lord God, I've got a wound that I need healed and I want to bring it to you right now. Whatever that is, I'm just going to ask you to take a moment to respond to the Lord. They're going to play. They're going to sing. We're going to worship. And you can come to this altar if you'd like. You can remain at your seat. You can stand and worship. But just respond to what the Lord is doing in your heart in this moment. Amen.